Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Uh, this week's episode is a review of a book. We're back to another book. We're still killing it for the year. This particular book uh, is called The Original Adventures of Ford Fairlane, The Long Lost Rock and Roll Detective Stories. I can't tell you how excited I was <laughs> to read an autobiography of Andrew Dice Clay. That's, well... Let's not mislead the listeners. That's not anyway. <laughs> by Rex, we're gonna call it Wiener, right? Is this straight up Wiener? Rex Wiener. Yeah, yeah, I guess. It's Wiener. Rex Wiener. Um, so before we dive into anything, I want to point out that, um, and I think I did on the previous episode that the uh, the reason I know about this book or we know about this book is that um, Kent Gowron, who is a friend of the podcast, posted a picture of his copy uh, when he received it, and I was like, "Wait, what is this?" Um, and immediately notified Livius and ordered ordered copies of it so um because i knew mostly because i knew Livius, you were a big fan of the movie mm-hmm. the adventures of ford fairlane and andrew dice clay in general i'm sure we'll get into that yeah i love andrew dice clay and i knew this wasn't the autobiography and, <laughs> and i'm gonna i'm gonna jump ahead a little bit because i messaged rob i was like four pages into this book and i was like i have to put it down because i keep hearing andrew dice clay narrate <laughs> I was able to shake that off eventually, but there are times where it would like come back and I'd have to like try to clear my head of the voice of, uh, of dice clay kind of doing this, uh, the shtick. Uh, there is an autobiography of, I don't know if you know this of Andrew dice clay. Did you know that? Yeah. So that's next week's episode, isn't it's, it? It's called, do you know what it's called? No, I don't actually. It's called the filthy truth by Andrew dice clay with David Ritz. Um, and it came out in 2016. We could have we could have reviewed this new when it came out. We could have, and you know what? I don't know. Like, here, every time I find out more about my heroes, the more disappointed I am. Yeah. Like I'd read that and probably find out that Dice isn't a chain smoking, womanizing, dirty, filthy comic. You know, like a person, like in real life, that's probably like just a persona. And uh, and I'd just be disappointed. So I'm gonna love him for who I believe him to be. So you're going to keep the myth alive or whatever. For sure. All right. All right. You ready to hear about Rex Wiener? Rex Wiener. This is, uh, after even some editing on Rob's part, this will probably be the longest bio we've read this year. Rex Wiener's career as an editor, writer, and publisher began with the underground press of the 1960s when he joined the staff of the East Village Other, helped manage the underground press syndicate, and was co-founder and publisher of the New York Ace. He is one of the founding editors of High Times Magazine. He is the co-author with Deanne Stillman of the Woodstock Census Nationwide Survey of the 60s Generation, one of the key texts documenting the era. As a screenwriter, he was one of the first writers hired to launch the TV series Miami Vice. He wrote and was associate producer of Forgotten Prisoners, The Amnesty Files, one of TNT's first made-for-TV feature movies. The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, based on Wiener's original stories, was released in 1990 by 20th Century Fox, starring Andrew Dice Clay and directed by Rennie Harlan. The original stories have been published by Rare Bird Books. As a staff reporter and feature article writer at Variety from 1993 to 1997, Wiener covered international film, film finance, and entertainment technology. His column, Lost and Found, appeared weekly in the trade paper. A native of Brooklyn, New York, Rex Wiener has lived in Los Angeles since 1981 and in the town of Todos Santos, Baja California, Sur, Mexico, where he is executive director and co-founder of the Todos Santos Writers Webshop. 
What town does he live in? <laughs> it's like eight Todos, names. Todos Santos, Baja, California, Sur, Mexico. I think there might be something wrong with that. I don't know. I don't know. That's a lot of... That's a mouthful. That is. Yeah. That is. So Rex Wiener has done stuff. How did he not mention that he was the editor for Swank Magazine? Yeah, I was going to say. The most impressive thing bag? in his, enti- his entire like resume. So, yeah. And especially considering it was in one of the supplemental pieces i can't remember exactly where in this book um he specifically said that when he when he left as editor they went to a pictures only format so like he he was he held out on the writing until like like the very you know, the bitter end and then they 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 shut it down when he was gone that i mean that might have been a good decision on their part i've i've seen swank <laughs> magazine and uh <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding, right? So magazines like that have words in them, so you have an excuse to just not look like a pervert. And let's be honest, it's just better if they fill it with more pictures. They're like, Rex, I don't know how many times we have to meet about this, but we've run the numbers. It's not the words that are selling these magazines. Yeah, I feel like, oh, Playboy has great articles. They publish great stories. That's just so they don't have to pay more chicks to be naked. I guess that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Swank needs to lean into that. Is that? Is it, do, you, do they still exist? I highly. I'm gonna find out, but I highly <laughs> doubt. I mean, like in in today's era of internet pornography, the fact that like a, a dirty magazine would exist at all would be surprising. Dirty magazine. That's that's get some back issues. Back issues on eBay. <laughs> uh, they don't have their own website. If that's a mm. thing, <laughs> this is that's, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> People also search for Genesis, Gent, Club, High Society, Gallery, We, Barely Legal, Jugs, Penthouse, and Screw. <laughs> Out of those, I believe I'm not familiar with Screw Magazine. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. You so. can get a copy. Hold on a second. You can get a copy of Swank Magazine from DiscountMags.com right now. Uh, not a copy. You can get one year, six issues for twenty four bucks. So I'm guessing that it's still uh, it's still in play. Mm. There you go. Although the cover they pictured, I'm pretty sure is from fifteen years ago. <laughs> the girl is naked, holding a cover, like a copy of like American Psycho or something. Very dated. It's uh, it's two naked girls, and one is holding the other one's legs up, like in a really uncomfortable position and they are perverted sisters of the flesh sasha and misha in heat with an exclamation point oh it's the it's as a matter of fact (laughs) as a matter of fact this magazine cover has four different exclamation points on it essentially everywhere they could put one (laughs) there's an exclamation point wow well they want you to get excited they want you to be enthusiastic about the sasha and what is it misha Sasha and Misha. We're really going off on a tangent here. I should probably just do the synopsis for the book. Let's do that. All right. So uh, I I can't. Libby always reads stuff way better than I do. So I apologize if I I have a much easier task and I'm probably going to mess it up way more. Before the movie about a rock and roll detective, there was Rex Wiener's noirish stories capturing the punk rock 1970s in New York and Los Angeles in all their gritty glory. First published in the New York Rocker and the L.A. Weekly in 1979 and 1980, the stories became the basis for the 20th Century Fox motion picture starring Andrew Dice Clay. From CBGB's The Mud Club and Tier 3 in New York City to the Starwood, Zero Zero, and the 
Cuckoo's Nest in L.A., Ford Fairlane takes you back to a sexy, violent, and explosively creative time and place that live on in rock and roll legend, brought authentically to life in these hard-boiled stories. <laughs> I almost said authentically. Right, so... I don't know how this happens, and this is not a slight against Rex or whoever, but this has been coming up a lot. I, I've been noticing this on the internet. Um, typos? Yeah. From, like, major publications, too, and I can't tell you right now, you know, off the top of my head, but every time I see it, I look back to see where the article was, and it's always a website that people know. Yep. You know, it's not, I'm not on, like, robsblog.com or, or whatever. It's, like, big sites. <laughs> this is from a publishing house. On Amazon. And you know how I caught it, Rob? Do you want to know how I caught it? There's, There's a little, a little red, red yeah. squiggly line under this goddamn thing. Yeah. <laughs> from yeah. when you copied and pasted it into our document. So there you go. All I'm going to say is there are no typos on robsblog.com. That's all right. Robsblog.com. <laughs> is that a real thing? Do you think that's a real thing? I don't know. I wonder how many people are going to go to it, though, and see and try to find out. I know right now. I'm going to find out. Oh, no. I am going to try to treat this review completely independent of the movie <laughs> The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. I may fail at doing that, but I am going to try. So that's my uh, disclaimer for this episode. All right. All right. I'm, uh, I'm, I think I'm going to succeed at that more than you are. Um, so basically, this isn't a novel, first of all, I want to point out. It is. Um, it says it's the long-lost rock and roll detective stories. And then when you look at the contents... Um, it's broken up into essentially two main sections. There's the New York and Los Angeles section. So what it boils down to on a previous episode, we covered the fact that like there was a, uh, a discrepancy in the number of pages between what Amazon said and what the actual print book uh, is like. Um, 130 pages. If really the stories go from on the print book about page 30 to about page 107. So you're looking at like almost 80 pages of, of story. The rest of it is introductions and, um, you know, back matter, like extra features like interviews and stuff like that. So the actual stories, about 80, 80 total pages, and they're broken up into the New York section, which was um, a section of they were just serialized. It was it's one story that was serialized. So it's broken up into pieces. Los Angeles was the other story that was serialized. So broken up into pieces as well. But really, we're talking about two stories. I'm really thankful that as uh, serialized pieces, um, sometimes what happens is the writer feels a need to kind of catch you up. And there's a lot of repetitiveness. Oh, yeah. I've read stuff before that was collected um, into one volume. And let's like you finish whatever the first portion of that is. And then like the first page or two of the next one kind of reiterate what was happening mm -hmm. previously in it, which gets really annoying as you're sitting and kind of reading straight through. So super refreshing that that didn't happen um, here in this book. For sure. Um, so I don't really know how much we're going to be able to, I, I was thinking about this, like they're short stories, so we probably can't talk too deeply about the story, but I don't really know how much we have to worry about spoilers either. Um, I doubt there will be spoiler talk for this just because, again, short stories, not a lot to go over. But um, they're two separate stories that basically have a beginning, middle, and end, and it's him doing detective stuff. And um, they're, they're fully realized stories. Each one kind of has like a setup, and then there is an ending to each story. Um, and, and obviously it's like, you know, this particular story is over, but he continues to be 
a rock and roll detective. The first story uh, is about a missing guitar that Ford Fairlane is hired to retrieve. Um, and this is when he's in New York and he's hanging out at all the rock clubs. And one of the things I guess we didn't mention is there's an intro by by Rex that that talks about how he developed um, these stories. And he spent a lot of time in rock clubs. He was in a band and stuff. So he tried to bring a detective into the world that he already knew. So the first case we see Ford on is a missing guitar, which, of course, turns into something much bigger than a guitar theft. Yeah, there's also uh, in the course of his investigation, there's a girl that pops up that becomes important that like he's trying to find her to get information and everybody's got their own little like detective agendas and stuff like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's written very much in like a very traditional, I would say hard boiled detective kind of way, just that, you know, the places that this dude is frequenting are all centered around the music scene of, of, of the time. So it's got a lot of, I'm assuming that, I would assume that everything that was name dropped in the book actually existed at the time, right? Correct. Yes, I recognized um, uh, enough of them to assume that the ones that I didn't recognize were also real people. Not in the, not like the villains weren't real people in the first story. So the story, like I said, I don't know. Right. We're going to worry about spoilers. They weren't real people, but everybody he talks to that's part of a band or a band he was going. Uh, to see or was to happen to be playing at the bar that he's going into for information, I believe, to all be real bands. Yeah, like he was throwing food at one of the Ramones. <laughs> that, that, so <laughs> that actually is from um, this is all blur for Rob. Um, that's actually that happened. That's that's from Rex Wiener's story, not from the the Ford Fairlane story. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> his first gig with his band was opening for a band called the Ramones, who apparently weren't oh, a big deal right. then. Yeah. I read and this that, all very quick, so that's yeah. okay. It's 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 an interesting story. I actually kind of highlighted um, that uh, they were on a double bill with uh, with a band called the Ramones. They were a poor, broke little band, so they had instruments, but they didn't have any amps. So when they got there, the amps were already set up for the Ramones, so they decided to use them. The Ramones got there, saw they were using them. Words were exchanged, and, and allegedly, um, Rex hit one of the Ramones in the face with a pie. That he like paid a guy to go out and get yeah, while yeah, the argument yes, was going yep, on, which yep, is like the best yeah. part. Yep, go get me something absolutely. to throw at this asshole. Right. So yeah, the the story is maybe a little wackier than a hard boy. Should we just should we just talk about the story? Yeah, I think we can just lay it All out. Right. So it turns out that there is um, a group of people. Uh, the the guitar thing is a plot by people who are into electronic music yeah. to make rock and roll go away in New York, but it's a little um, a little darker than that. They believe that they have found this perfect sound, these three chords that will essentially, I don't know, kind of hypnotize people. Yeah. Is that the right? Is that the impression you got? Yeah, yeah. They basically just wanted to like hypnotize, paralyze their their audience with the sound. So essentially, Ford goes from looking for a missing guitar to breaking up this evil plot to to kill rock and roll in New York and 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 take over um, the audiences, essentially. Which was pretty all right. So like, I got the feeling when this story resolved that I would have appreciated the ending of this story better if I knew more about music, because it seemed like the whole what it was they were calling it the Orpheus scale. Um, which I looked up online and there's nothing referencing that. So I'm I'm assuming that was somewhat made up Um, or at least not, you know, not something that's relevant today. 
And I got the feeling that it was some reference to, like, the shift away from rock and roll was somehow a very negative thing. And it had to do with these three chords. And if I knew more about, like, how music was done, I would know more, like, what he was... Like, I feel like it was more of a precise um, reference to something that I just... I don't understand. Like, maybe it was... Um, I don't know when was this written. I can't remember. But anyway, um, do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I feel like he was specifically shitting on a certain type of music, not just making up this part of this minor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I also looked up the Orpheus scale and, and did not find anything. But three chords, um, in my experience, typically refers to punk music. Okay. Essentially, every punk song has only played on three chords. Yeah, yeah, okay. So so that's possibly, but they were electronic. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know what I mean? Like, he made a distinction of not just leaving the three chords there open for interpretation. Those guys were all, like, super into, like, electronic music. Right. Which would not have fallen to the punks, so to speak. Yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah, like, so I'm wondering in the late 70s, early 80s, what that would mean. But that was really close to the emergence of, like, industrial music and like you know early electronic stuff yeah. so new wave yeah. a lot of new wave stuff coming in yeah. then that was all keyboards and and whatnot so yeah i'm sure that's probably a little bit of a nod to that yeah um, not much else to say about the the story itself um i guess we can go into the next one because and then kind of maybe talk about the differences between them and <laughs> and, and uh so the next story is uh, Ford has uh, has moved to Los Angeles, so different scene, different um, you know, different type of music, um, definitely a different feel for this guy who, who came up in New York, and this time he's looking for a girl. Yeah, so he is hired to well, he's hired as kind of like a glorified bodyguard at first for uh, I think it's a girl named Wanda, um, because um, her manager, she's about to start a European tour, I believe, or like an international tour. And her manager doesn't want her getting anything going wrong before she starts this tour. So he's supposed to basically just make sure she gets home safe and is ready to take off, I believe, the next day for whatever international thing is going on. And um, obviously that doesn't go according to plan. He gets knocked out. She is missing when he wakes up. And now he has to find her. And um, so he's following the clues he has and, and looking in, you know, go looking into things. And along the way, bodies start dropping and, and, and it gets way out of hand. It does. And in a really short space, uh, you know, I mean, these are super short stories. Each one has six parts. What'd you say? It was 80 pages of, of story altogether. Yeah. And the first story is bigger. So I think this one's like 30 pages. Yeah. So yeah, we're looking at, you know, 30 to 50 pages for each story. So they move very, very quickly. Um, but constantly on the move, there is no downtime in any of these stories. Everything um, in each one of them um, has cause to advance the story. So there's not a lot of backstory on really on anybody. We don't find out about the uh, origins of Ford Fairlane or anything like that. We're kind of right. dropped into the middle of his life. And uh, not so much like a character piece. I mean, the characters that, that get developed in this are really brought to light or like the music scene in, in New York and, and California in the uh, um, late seventies and not so much the characters themselves. Yeah. I mean, really. And as I was reading this, it became very obvious that the, the, the character of Ford Fairlane and his weird detective stuff that he goes through is really just like a staging for 
what is basically commentary on the music scene in general. Um, like that's the real, the good bits are when you're learning about, you know, where people were and what people were doing and what clubs they went to and what, you know, what was the cool place to go grab dinner or whatever. Like those types of things was really what were the shining moments of the stories. For sure. And I mean, I, I don't, again, this is going to be a weird book review because we're kind of doing two short stories, but I do have to say that I really, really liked um, his writing. His yeah. writing was, how do I say this? It was really endearing for stories that didn't really amount to a whole lot. I mean, the stories are a lot of fluff and they're, they're, you know, kind of real wide exaggerations of, of a detective story, you know, like the, the hard boiled stories and, and I'm not a hard boiled expert by any means, but you know, you've got a group of uh, Germans in the first one, right? Who are trying to find the who try think they found the perfect chords, and they're going to shut down rock and roll by stealing and and then enclosing every guitar. What was it in some kind of like plexiglass? Yeah, like you know where you can never get the guitars back out. Essentially, you know yeah. that kind of story. To um, the second one, which was probably a little more realistic, you know, kind of a missing persons story. Um, but really, he. <sighs> How do I say this? His writing far exceeds the quality of the stories that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. It was kind of like a cartoonish use of detective stories, but um, man, and I guess we can go into some of the little observations I made, but like the first one I'll, I'll mention is like, if you want to talk about like keeping you entertained, uh, especially in the, in the LA story. No, I think it was, I believe it was maybe on like the later half of the, New York stories, but also popped up early in the LA story was, um, the, the, like the, the there was a line, like you could tell they were cops, <laughs> which was probably one of my favorite things in this entire book, yeah. because like he, he's in a club and he's like, you could tell they were cops cause they were the only two with long hair, you know? And then like, right, yeah. and then like he'd go to a different club and then plain clothes cops switch up and you'd be like, you could tell they were cops because they were the only one that was wearing like tweed coats that fit or something like that. Yep. Yeah, there was probably six or seven of those, and they were all great. And that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Super talented and engaging writer, um, you know, outside the the bounds of the stories he told, for sure. Yeah. And then there was... Well, oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. While we're on, you know, kind of quotes, this might be my favorite thing I've read in a while. Uh, Ford runs into this uh, runs into this girl, and he says... She looked good, too good. I wanted to grab her and say a lot of things about the moon in June, but it was the middle of March and we were both out in the cold. Yep, that was a standout line. That was a very good one. Fantastic. Um, there is in I'm gonna I'm gonna read an entire paragraph of something because this is fucking this I think really sums up the the style of writing that is pretty consistent through this book. The setup is Ford was held captive, like locked in a closet somewhere. And uh, someone had uh, sneaked, uh, snuck, snuck, sneaked, snuck, snuck a knife so that he could kind of free himself from his his bindings or whatever. Anyway, he's he's in the process of escaping. Um, and uh, this is so like that ends a chapter like kind of ambiguously, like we know that he's going to get out. Um, and the the next chapter opens up. Two naked women stood in galvanized tubs of water playing the theme from Star Wars on saxophones while a third woman dipped her bare feet in pots of paint and danced across a large canvas. A video crew recorded the performance. 
on a state arts council grant, and 50 suckers who doled out 10 bucks a piece for entry were watching. Then the ceiling opened up and a guy clutching a knife dropped down, kicking over the paint pots and knocking one of the naked broads out cold. The audience clapped politely. And then the next paragraph starts. Standing on the West Broadway sidewalk, dripping paint, I flagged a cab and headed uptown. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> oh. oh, my God. The way that, like, that, because, like, imagine, that's that's probably the break in the serialization. So, like, mm-hmm. whoever got to that opening, you know, paragraph probably read the other thing weeks ago or whatever, a month ago. And and just, like, that carryover, the way he broached it in, on, in the new chapter was just fucking great. And it's very entertaining. Want to go with uh, one more because um, this line just, I don't know, it just made me smile. And again, just indicative of, of his writing. So something's going on. They're in a bar and cops are there and Ford decides to make a run for it, I think. But just as we hit the dance floor, Darby Crash, which Darby Crash is a band that's playing that night, unleashed a brilliant rendition of Beyond Help. The crowd contracted massive epilepsy. <laughs> yes. Oh, so good. good. So goddamn good. Yeah, that's basically how the whole thing's written. It's very entertaining. And um, it's like it's it's paced well. And like like Livia said, always something's always going on. Did you um, there's a character with a very um, serious lisp in the first story. Yeah, that's all written um, like phonetically phonetically. That's the word I was looking for. Did you find yourself trying to say the words? Because I found myself like actually like whispering the words in their phonetic no, I knew he was saying Sphinx, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But um, no, that was that was kind of funny. There was, yeah, there was those. That was that was a good moment. I like that guy. Um, one thing I want to point out, which uh, happened in the L.A. part, um, a lot of, and I, I think we've made it clear, he does a lot of name dropping of of bands that were relevant to the time, like the late seventies, early eighties. And um, you know locations and stuff, clubs, restaurants, things like that. But um, one of one of the bands stand, stood out to me um, because, and I won't pretend like I don't know if Livius knows because we talked about it before we got mm-hmm. on the podcast. Um, because we know someone who was in that band, and so it was like a really cool thing. Um, in in a in a collection of um, punk bands from L.A. or maybe the southern part of L.A. I don't know exactly if it was very regionalized or not. He mentions the Urinals. Rob Roberge's band. Yeah. And from its time, which... In the um, time, yeah. Yeah. So I don't... Like, how do I say this? I, I was not... I'm not, I'm not familiar with the urinals. Um, now I know who they are because of Rob Roberge. But, I mean, this lends a certain credence to their importance in the music industry when somebody from the music industry is writing stories and then name drops. Yeah. Name drops the band. And I believe... I may have this marked. I believe in the same sentence as bands like the Dead Kennedys... Yep. So I mean, it's yeah, it's here it is: the yeah. germs, bags, circle jerks, dead Kennedys, urinals. I mean, that's it's some pretty crazy. Pretty, that's some punk rock royalty right there. Yeah. So that was pretty wild, and like we've, I, that made me think we've been on this weird kick lately with music and writing that uh, is absolutely not intentional, um, because we we've got this book, we've got the residence book, um, we've got everything that we've read by Josh Mallerman, um, we've got your Rob Robert's books, we've got a lot of music or like musicians writing books sure it's kind of strange you know and neither one of us i know we both like music but i wouldn't say either one of us are like into music right 
I know you listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of different music than what you listen to, but I don't think either one of us are really like into it. But yeah, it seems to be popping up in our fiction quite a bit. Yeah, it's a it's a weird theme that's happening right now. So um, I know that our next book will break that theme. We'll talk about that later. But um, yeah, just it was it was worth mentioning, and especially how they have like kind of connections to each other. Like the fact that Rob Roberts came up in this book was was really it really tickled me. Yep. You ready to wrap this bad boy up? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll start out. I knew this book was going to be fun because, um, first of all, I, I trust Kent Cowron's taste in things. And when he when he when it was big enough for him to post, I thought, all right, this has got there's got to be something to this. And there's something about someone who um, takes their kind of. I don't want to say passion, but like the industry, the, the industry they work in and fictionalizes it that um, kind of throws away you questioning the authenticity of that part of the story. And it's just a matter of like, is this person also a good writer? And in this case, this person is absolutely a good writer and brings all of this cool information from their experience over the years with the industry that they work in, which is the music industry. So um, the book was just super entertaining and it's super fast. It's two stories, like I said, 80 pages. And um, in addition to that, it does have um, probably 30 or so pages of, of different interviews in the back of it, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit as well. Um, interviews with people who had been publishers for the magazines that serialized the stories originally, but also then um, who uh, in the movie industry made the film. So uh, real good stories. The fiction was great. And um, the bonus content was cool to kind of like um, con- contextualize what was going on when the these stories came out. Because obviously, I mean, if you think about it, these stories are a year younger than me. So obviously I have no like personal experience from that time to re- reference. Um, so the book does a good job of contextualizing the stories as well. So I found it very entertaining and easy to read and fun. And I'm going to go four stars. I said something on the last podcast and I'm going to stick to it fully minus one star for the price. Price is important. (laughs) Rob, what'd you pay for the book? 16 bucks, 17 bucks. Yeah. $17. You got a nice book out of it. Yeah. It's a nice book. Yeah. Paid $14 for a Kindle version. That's (laughs) more than 10 cents per page. And mind you, with no interest in the interviews, like strictly for the story, sure. right? So um, starting out at minus one star. Now I'll go on. Um, I will mention the interviews a little bit. Here's what I found um, interesting about the interviews. You know, they had the right thing, they, the absolute right thing. They're like, you know who else we're going to talk to? The guy that like edited the magazine when this, this stuff got accepted 35, 40 years ago, yeah. whatever the hell it is, right? And you could just tell those people had no recollection. Yeah, like it wasn't. Reading yeah. the interviews. Like they, they talked <laughs> about like their involvement with the magazine, what the scene was like at the time. And they're like, what did you think about this story? And they're like, uh, you know, it was a really long time ago. The story was okay. Like that <laughs> like, was really the, the I don't feel think anybody that I, hated it. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. So um, that being said, I really, really enjoyed his writing style a lot. Um, it was really nice to see where Ford Fairlane, um, I know people are going to roll their eyes. It, one of my favorite movies of all time. I was a big Dice Clay fan as a kid. I'm still a pretty big Dice Clay fan today. Um, seeing him in that movie, which we're going to talk about as well, um, 
you know, was uh, was a lot of fun for me. And of course, when I found out there was an origin to it, um, I, I wanted to read it and I was not disappointed in anything but this ridiculous price for the ebook. Um, his writing style was more engaging, like I said, than it really had any right to be, um, you know, based on the types of stories we were getting in a serialized, you know, weekly or monthly um, periodical. So uh, when it's all said and done, super happy I got to read them. Really enjoyed his writing style. I'm, I'm a little sad that it doesn't seem he has anything else fiction out there because I would read longer form Brex Wiener if it was, uh, you know, something that, that was, you know, more what like what we would read and not an expose into hippies in the sixties at, you know, whatever festival. So, um, uh, with the negative one star for the price, I'm going to give this also four stars. Wow. There you go. Um, cool. So, uh, I guess you, you mentioned the interview stuff. We don't have to worry about doing that because you kind of took care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to just talk about the movie, the adventures of Ford Fairlane? I watched The Adventures of Ford Fairlane earlier this week again. Yeah. This was probably the 25th, 30th time oh, I'd seen this movie. Um, so before we dive into talking about the movie itself, um, I guess, does he have screenplay credits in, in the version that actually made it? Because like you read in, the, in this book that he put out that he wrote over the years several screenplays for... Um, the movie in in the in the course of it being optioned over and over again, but I don't remember if um, he has screenplay credits on the actual. I'm going to IMDb right now. I am trying to do the same. He has oh. characters credits. He does not have screenplay credits. So Daniel Waters, James Cap, David are not our screenplay screenplay credits. So yeah, um, I first saw this movie in the movie theater. Because that's where I was wow. at in my life. <laughs> 1990, we know where you were. That's right, man. Lining up at midnight for the fucking first showing of... Yeah, it probably wasn't midnight. I'm sure it wasn't midnight. Um, I, You know, I said I wanted to treat the book differently than, you know, completely separate from the movie. Because quite honestly, other than the name and the fact that there's some music involved, you know, there's the music industry there. No, there's nothing to, to put these two together. Do you feel the same way? I was hoping you would feel that way. Um, yeah, nothing. It's definitely different. Like I can see how they basically took the general idea of a character named Ford Fairlane, who's a rock and roll detective, who um, it definitely has that aspect of like getting in over his head, but like you know he always lands on his feet, kind of, and he you know he's too cool for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a large, large Andrew Dice Clay footprint on, like, that idea. Oh, for sure. Far, far goofier in the movie than, than the character is on the page. Absolutely. So yeah. in, in name alone, name and industry alone is the only way I would call these two related. Yeah, I'm trying to think of something that would be similar to that, like, um, where it was, like, Inspired by, instead of actually being an adaptation of something. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Anne Rice's East of Eden. Oh, yeah, yeah. You were talking about that before. Yeah, which is a super serious book about uh, an island, um, a sex island, essentially, (laughs) that was made into a movie about a sex island in which they dropped Dan Aykroyd and, oh, what's her name? At any rate, they drop in two silly detectives that are investigating a mystery, 
um, that completely takes away from from the whole from the whole story. So yeah, you know, very similar to that. That might have been made around the same time. That might have been the same people <laughs> that I think about it, like that made that decision to take <laughs> a, a story and really kind of turn it on its ear by trying to over uh, over funny the movie. Um. Now, here's what I'll say. Like, I I'd, I'd watched in the last probably six months. Um, Ford Fairlane at one point, um, and I and I thought it was okay. It was about what I remembered it to be. This is where I'm going to be just breaking Livius's poor heart. Having read the book and then watched the movie right after it, I was like, "Wow, this is awful. This is like, <laughs> this is someone who uh, just basically wanted to trot out some of their, you know, stand up routine, but like." in a in a in a detective store i don't know like it, it did not it did not sit well with me after after reading the book yeah i don't feel any different about the movie the movie's dated um in order to really enjoy ford fairlane you either had to have seen it then or really kind of uh, put yourself in the in the wayback machine yeah and try to get a feel for what movies were like comedy movies um at that time but there's a pretty impressive cast i think you have to admit that right um, oh yeah, I, I was about to say that there's a lot of vagina jokes, but um, <laughs> or or we could talk about that. <laughs> there, there is an impressive, it is an impressive cast. Um, it, like way more so. Wayne Newton. We were talking about this before. We couldn't remember mm-hmm. who Wayne Newton was. Priscilla yeah, Presley is in it. Mm-hmm. Morris Day, who I'm I'm aware was in that in that the time right the band. Oh my god, dude! Really? Have I not talked about this on the podcast? My personal relation to Morris Day. Wait, <laughs> I, do you have a personal relation with Morris Day? Sort of. Now I, I don't list this on my credits, but I, I did once dance on stage with Morris Day. Oh wait, I think that we I think we may have talked about this before. Yeah. Did you yeah. dance well? Yeah. You know what? I think I'll be honest. I think I was brought up there as the token white guy that people would make fun of. Yeah. So they can say go go, white boy. It didn't go down that way. Oh, no. Because I do a killer bird. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. Morris Day fans will understand what I'm talking about. I don't know. know. This is going to go in a a bad direction, I think. (laughs) So, at any rate, (sighs) Morris Day stage dancer. That's what it should say in my IMDb bio one day. Yeah. You got to get one of those first. Um, Couple of other Gilbert Gottfried is in it. Um, David Patrick Kelly, who um, he's the sleazy Sam guy. He, you know him from Twin Peaks. Oh, he was the stoner brother. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking in my head that he looked familiar, but I couldn't, couldn't quite, couldn't quite place him. But yeah, that's right, Twin yeah. Peaks. Robert Englund, mm-hmm. better known as Freddy Krueger. Ed O'Neill, Vince Neil. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in this. Did you catch, Carrie um, Werner is in it? I can't think of what, um, what her name is. And I've closed out the page, but, uh, the girl from Californication, yeah, Pamela Adlin. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. She's in it. I mean, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of very recognizable people. Sheila E, the musician is in it. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a good fun romp of a movie completely unrelated to its source material. I mean, it has a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, vagina jokes. Well, there's a lot of vagina jokes. Like, 
I wanted to, I was I was trying to remember the one that he said um to the kid when the two girls are leaving his house that one morning. There was a total vagina joke there. Um No, what I was gonna say is um it's very slapsticky. Like there's a lot of like the fight scenes are just kinda campy and, and stuff like that and like that opening so like he goes to a club <laughs> and it's it's where uh it's at the beginning of the movie and like, that's where we introduced that sleazy Sam dude and stuff. Um, and he's got this fucking routine where he like lights a cigarette and it takes like a minute, like <laughs> all of like the different little jerky moves he has to do. And he's flipping his coat open and he's got oh, like amazing. a leather fucking like cigarette pack holder inside. Huh, it's and like a he... holster for cigarettes. Oh, you never God. had one of those. No, no, I mean, okay. I never smoked, right. so. No, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. And then he's got this other, like, little belt clip thing for his Zippo. Zippo lighter. And then there's, like, this fucking, like, the only, like, in, 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 in film, when they do, like, a, like, a shot of just your face, it's called coverage, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. There's, like, a coverage-style shot of him holding the Zippo so you can see the way he flips it open. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It took, like, a minute for him to light a cigarette. And then immediately to be told to put the cigarette out, which he fakes doing, he pantomimes yep. putting it out and then just goes right back to smoking it. But he's like jerking his arm around and stuff. It's just, oh, my God. So oh. Uh, that was the beginning of every Dice Clay stand up ever. But he didn't do the around the head thing. No, that he didn't do. But no, every every time he came out on stage, and that's when you said like that, you know, this was a vehicle for him to do some of his stand up. Yeah. I mean, that's really yes, that's all very very true. But like I said, if you ever catch any one of his specials, it's the exact same thing. He well, back when he could smoke in places, the old specials. Yeah, yeah he'd walk out, and it was essentially that, like you said, ninety second <laughs> bit God, of him it. getting a cigarette lit, and then launching into a into you know some profane joke. Immediately, something about sex with a woman i'm sure um and i guess my 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 objection to that like the dice clay stand-up aspect of it is that like it's far less clever than the comedy in the book <laughs> like you know what i'm saying yeah oh yeah 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 and, i mean that's that's the whole thing i don't think that um most of dice's stuff is uh very thoughtful no and it's not clever no. Um, it's just kind of like, it's, it's body, I guess is the best way I could describe it. Oh, so, I thought you were going to say amazing. Oh no, no. Cause body. that's how I feel about it's dice. Body. Yeah, I know. So, all right. So since we're talking about the movie, um, can we talk about that fucking koala bear? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember in 1990 thinking that there was a weird animatronic koala bear in that movie. Yeah, and there definitely is. Yeah, there, there totally There is. really is. Eating cereal. Just hanging out on the couch eating cereal mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I like that they fake the... Spoilers for anybody. I like that they fake the death of the koala bear. That was probably one of the more like funny parts, parts of the story. That was funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I can't tell you that it's I, I can't recommend people go watch Fort Fairlane. I can't. But it holds a very special <laughs> place in my heart. Now, this is the first time I've seen the whole thing and probably, I don't know, I guess five years. Maybe I did watch about half of it. It was just on HBO one day. I was flipping channels and I probably saw like the middle half of it. 
and then yeah. had to go or something. You know, I was just looking for something to kill some time. And uh, but yeah, if it's on, I'm gonna watch it. That's that's quite literally how that and like Die Hard. I feel the same way about that. If it's on, no matter what time of day <laughs> it is, like I'm gonna I'm gonna watch that until either I fall asleep or, or like physically have to leave. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, I I didn't not like watching it. I just I feel like I would have liked I would have liked it more had I not read the book. Five stars, five stars for me. The, the <laughs> going back to the book a little bit. Every person that was interviewed, <laughs> yeah, none of them had actually seen had, the movie. Had, had never seen the movie. Yeah, uh, but they're and, but and and either they're just like nope, never saw it, or like no, nope, but I heard it was okay, or something like that. Yeah, Very like yeah. even the people who like were instrumental in like this story becoming a reality. Uh, never, never watched it. You've seen you it just 25 times more than the guy who fucking greenlit it for the, <laughs> yeah, you know, for yeah. the movie. No, no shit. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I said. And, and I mean, I think back to it, like, I don't feel that these stories were very pivotal in any way, shape or form. They were distributed. And, and again, I, I was just a little kid in those days. Right. I don't even know what kind of circulation these magazines had. So it's not like when you when you talk about like Charles Dickens being serialized, you know, what yeah. I mean? where essentially all of the UK was reading it, you know, yeah. as it came out every week or every two weeks or however often it came out. Um, it just seems like this had very little distribution. And as an editor for a magazine going back, you know, 40 years, um, they probably published a lot of things. Yeah. And I don't know how much they remember. I mean, hell, you and I published a book just a few years ago, and there's sometimes where I got to scratch my head and try to remember what one of the stories was about. Sure. So, I mean, I don't fault them for that. I just felt like those interviews, like someone conducted the interviews, then they should have been like, yeah, these guys don't know shit about this story. Maybe we'll just leave this out. Maybe we'll just make it 20 cents per page. Yeah, or ask more leading questions. Like, I, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know what to say. Like as an interviewer, I'd be, well, you know what? I'd either, there's two ways I would approach this. Just be like, I'm going to make this as awkward as fucking possible with these interviews, with these people who didn't even think about this in the last 35 years. Or I'm going to craft an interview in a way that like makes the best of maybe they don't remember so much. And they obviously went with like, I'm going to make this as awkward as hell. Yeah. No kidding. Jesus. Jesus Christ. Pat. (sighs) Pat Thomas. I did enjoy the book though. (laughs) book's great the movie's not bad like if uh if you were if like all right so the next time we go to a conference and and you're you're you refuse to let us watch scott pilgrim again if you threw on ford family and i would totally watch it with you oh yeah now i'm going to a conference (laughs) specifically for that reason just yeah just to make sure you hold i'm gonna bring the audio just this clip with me that would play on my phone over and over as you're (laughs) telling me you don't want to watch ford fairlane oh all right so uh, here's a criticism that i forgot i had about the movie uh it's it there's there's moments where he's doing narration and um he goes into that kind of like kind of like (laughs) (laughs) bullshit thing he does like in his comedy and stuff and i was like why why is this in the fucking narration come on if you can't find that movie brilliant <laughs> simply for Ed O'Neill's rendition of Booty Time, Booty Time then I, yeah. I don't know how to help you. <laughs> Just do. You're beyond help. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty fucking good, man. <laughs> god damn it. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Dice Clay um, live twice. Wow. Seriously? 
once in his absolute heyday would have been 1989. Um, I think it was the night before Thanksgiving, an absolutely sold out Rosemont Horizon, um, which for people who aren't familiar is probably a 18,000 seat. It's a big venue. arena. Yeah. 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 It's a um, big arena. And then I saw him at the Vic theater like 10 <laughs> years ago. Oh no. And there were a lot of empty seats. <laughs> So, oh, so that's oh, yeah. <laughs> that's sad. Um, I, 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 I just thought of something from the movie that I have to give credit to. You have to give it up to a movie that has Andrew Dice Clay in full, like huge, stupid leather jacket, mixing it up with Robert England in a boat that's sinking. That that's yeah. They're hitting saying? each other with like giant dildos and shit. Yeah, that but was the scene is brilliant. That's the action apex of that movie. And I mean, not to continue talking about this movie, but the fact that Robert England's character just won't die. That's true. He does. He does. He should have died like several times. And it's great because he just keeps coming back. And he's so. just like, hello, hello. Yeah, I actually Good use stuff. that hello, hello on occasion. I'm telling you, it was in my formative years, man. When I was a kid, I wanted to grow up to be Andrew Dice Clay, not the comedian, the person. <laughs> that was my goal. Um, yeah. That um, that's uh, that's that's cool. I don't All I don't right. remember. I'm I'm only I'm hesitating on that because it immediately immediately made me think who do I want to be, or who did I want to be back then? And I didn't have I couldn't come to like an easy answer to that. I don't think there was anybody that was like, that's who I want to be. Oh, he was so wonderful. <sighs> yeah, I've watched the Dice Show on, um, Showtime. Yeah, and uh, it's fair. It's fair to watch. Yeah, I'm not gonna say it's great. I'm not gonna say it got you know gets my heart all a twitter at uh, at the you know fact that there might be a third season or whatever. But it was definitely very watchable and enjoyable. Yeah, I, I watched the first episode, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's so, it. so there you have it. That is our review of the Adventures of Ford Fairlane, the book and the movie. Yeah pretty exciting i was glad glad this happened when it did and um that we were able to jump right on it it was it's very timely the book came out i think the 17th so it's only like a week after the book was released and um i only see one review of it on amazon mm -hmm. which is kind of sad to is me it it's from, been is it by Kent Gowron? the review is by a dude or a woman named c cohen mm -hmm. it's a five-star review that's good collected together for the first time um, it looks like they're kind of redoing a synopsis. If you only know the character from the movie, you're in for a treat. <laughs> With a story taking place on each coast, you get a glimpse of what each city was like in the late 70s and early 80s when the music scene was thriving, as well as being redefined. 35 plus years after publication, these stories that utilize real locations and the occasional celebrity cameo really like a gritty time capsule of places that are still standing but no longer exist. Uh, I bet you C. Cohen was around back in those days. Do you did this put you in some kind of weird nostalgic thing? Because I happen to notice on the social medias that you were sharing that you were watching a movie that that even predates <laughs> the book, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it yesterday? I believe it was yesterday. So recording this on Sunday, the 29th of July. So yesterday, yeah, it had to be yesterday, Saturday. 
um, I posted that I was watching the uh, Robert Redford classic, Three Days of the Condor. Are you familiar with this movie at all? I know it exists, yeah, but that's really all I know. It's a spy film, but other than that, no, I, I don't. I've not seen it. So, the Three Days of the Condor is a movie that came out in 1975, starring Robert Redford. Also had Faye Dunaway and awesome people like Max von Sydow and stuff like that. Um, it, it is it, for me. I'd always heard of it as like the quintessential spy movie, um, just because like like the basic layout of the movie is Robert Redford works on a team of people who read every book that's published in the world. And what they're doing is they're looking for like terror plots and stuff like that, that either, you know, sound real or like may inspire people to do bad things. Basically they're, they're taking all the books in the world and figuring out how could the, the plots in these stories be a threat to national security. Doesn't that sound cool? That does, and I'm sorry to derail you. How the hell is Brendan Fraser in this? Brendan Fraser's in it. Yeah, he must have been. Never a kid. mind. Hold on. Never mind. Are you looking at the wrong thing? I am sorry, and here's why. I um I actually pulled up. Um, apparently, there's a. First of all, there's a network called the AT and T Audience Network, which is probably that, surprised to everybody. Uh, yeah. So that's the first surprise that there's a network <laughs> I've never heard of. Um, no, they have a um, they have a TV show. They just announced their season two for Condor, which is based on Three Days of the Condor. Oh. And unfortunately, in having both these tabs open, uh, so the cast also includes and one of the names is Brendan Fraser. And I was like, what was he like? Like a, he was a baby? Is there a baby in this movie? <laughs> um, that's funny. Uh uh, well, I'm wondering if he was even. Yeah, he was born in 1968, so he would have been seven years yeah. old. Yeah. Um. So at the opening of the up the opening of the movie, um, basically he goes into the office, and um, it's obvious that the office is being surveilled, and he gets sent out to do like the lunch, pick up the lunch order for the whole team. And he goes out the back door because it's raining and it's closer to get to where he's going through the back door. So the people who are watching the building from the front don't know he's gone. They roll in and they murder his entire team. And uh, he comes back to just this massacre and um, is basically goes on the run because he doesn't trust anybody. And he's trying to figure out who's trying to kill him and stuff like that. And so it's like this cat and mouse kind of thing, um, like the synopsizer we were talking about in the previous episode. Locked in a deadly game of cat and mouse. Um, he's he's trying to figure out who's trying to kill him, and he's trying to stay alive. And so, um, it's I mean, it, it holds up remarkably well for a movie that came out what forty three years ago, right? Yeah, nineteen seventy five. Yeah. Um, and I watched. Here's the reason you you want to know why I watched it, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I I mean, it always kind of had this legend about it, so I knew there was something that. I started watching it one time, didn't finish, and I wanted to watch it. And for some reason, iTunes this past week had just like a billion movies that were like five bucks. And so I bought a few movies, and this was one of them because I knew it, it was a classic that had a lot of acclaim to it. And um, so I bought it, and I watched it. Apparently it was based on a book called Six Days of the Condor, so they yeah. must have had to shorten it up for the... For the thing, so what happens? How much money do you spend when iTunes runs a deal like this? Because I feel like you just snatch up everything that's on sale. Is that fairly accurate? Uh, let's see. 
I'll, I'll try and remember the movies that I bought. I bought that, and I bought the Ryan Johnson movie Brick. Do you ever see Brick? Such a, such a good movie. Yeah. Um, bought Brick, and I bought The Lookout, which is another Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, movie from around that time. I don't know. I might have bought another one. But so it was like twenty bucks I dropped probably okay. something like that. I just picture you spending like two hundred dollars every time there's like oh, one man. of those sales. Well, the problem is I've got so many. Um, I think I've got uh, about 180, 190 movies on iTunes now. Holy shit! Um, and it's just because I always buy them when they're five dollars, and this yeah. is over the course of like a decade. So it's I'm not spending a lot of money at any given time, but like I just now when they have these sales, usually I've already got them. So I don't spend as much money. You know what's uh, I- interesting um, about that is, you know, I still come from the generation like when when VHS first came out, and that was the thing. Like everyone knew the guy, the guy that had like four hundred VHS yeah. movies that he bought. And I just, and this is no slight to you, but you say that it sounds so impressive. But like you scrolling through an iPad showing me would not be the same thing as walking in and seeing that many DVDs like categorized on a shelf. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So I'm with you. I, physical media sucks. That's my belief. Digital movies, digital books, digital music. I'm all for all of that. But when you amass a collection like that, like I don't even think about like how many digital books I own. It's hundreds and hundreds. Sure. But it's not it's not impressive at all because there's yeah. nothing to actually show for it. So uh, Wayne's World was the other movie I bought. So I did buy four movies. I bought those. Yeah, those four movies. Wayne's World. I also watched Wayne's World, too. I watched it as, as I bought it. Hey, Rian Johnson, that's the guy that just had the kind of uh, lackluster Han Solo movie, right? Or am I getting that wrong? Did he do the Solo he, one? He did the uh, he did oh, he's the Last Jedi. In one of them. Oh, never mind. Okay, that one. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that guy has come up in the world. I love Brick, and I'm just sad that Brick isn't based on a book that we can review. Yeah, Brick was a great fucking movie. And it's been so... I've probably haven't watched it since a couple of years after it came out, so I'm going to have to rewatch it, but... um. That that was such a weird. It was weird, but it was real good. Yeah, um, I, I saw it a couple of years ago. I, I I don't know if I happened across it. Maybe it was on Netflix or something. Um, it was reminded just how brilliant, brilliant that movie is. Yeah, and um, you said Lookout, right? I did not. I don't even know what that is. When you said it, nothing came came to mind. Um, it has nothing to do with Ryan Johnson. It's um, it's definitely just a Joseph Gordon Levitt thing. Um. But it's a movie about, and it came out um, around not long after uh, Brick, so within probably a few years of that. But he's this guy who, um, as a, as a teenager, got in a car accident that kind of messed his brain up a little bit, and he's like working as like the janitor in a bank, and um, some people recruit him as the inside guy for a heist um, of of that bank, hmm. um, and it's interesting because like he's supposed to be kind of on the, the slow side. Like, his brain just doesn't work properly from the car accident. Um, so it's 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 kind of... He's the protagonist of the story. It's it's interesting. Um, in uh, in order, how, how I find um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt movies, um, Brick, number one. Yeah. Ten Things I Hate About You, number two. <laughs> Halloween H20, number three. And then I don't think about George Gordon... 
Joseph Levitt at all anymore after that. Wow. He's been in a lot of stuff, though. He was in... Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was in, like, about. Looper. Looper was okay. Like, Lo- like, uh, like, Looper was a really good movie. Looper was not a great time travel movie. And so it loses points for me on sure. the time travel stuff. So, right. yeah. Um, he was also in Inception. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, doesn't... he was. Nothing there. All right. Uh, I did. I wanted so badly to watch Comrade Detective. Do you know what Comrade Detective is? No. <sighs> Comrade Detective is this super weird thing. I think it's on Amazon. It is. Um, it's supposed to be like a like an early '80s Cold War Romanian TV show about cops. <laughs> but what we're seeing is like the first dubbed version of it. Uh-huh. And I tried to watch one episode and it's fucking unwatchable. Oh no. Oh yeah. It's unwatchable. Last year. Yeah, and it's got I mean it's it's Channing Tatum, mm-hmm. Joseph Gordon Levitt, and then like a bunch of actual like Romanian people. Wow. Yeah. Oh, he played Edward Snowden in the Snowden movie. Yeah, I didn't see that one. He also wrote uh Don John. Where he's like this fucking straight up Guido who's obsessed with masturbating to porn. And he's banging Scarlett Johansson. Do you know anything about this? Oh, this is a legitimate movie? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I thought you were telling me the, the plot of something you found on Pornhub. Here's, I'll re- no, I'll read you what it actually is described as. A New Jersey guy dedicated to his family, friends, and church develops unrealistic expectations from watching porn and works to find happiness and intimacy with his potential true love. So basically, like, it's this dude who just come, gets hung up on the fact that porn is way better than actually banging chicks. And it throws off his whole perception of what relationships should be like. It's pretty great. All right. You've uh, just listened to an episode of Viewed. <laughs> I saw that in theaters, by the way. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that was good. I did see two movies that I do want to, since we're on the movie kick. I watched The Greatest Showman. Um, why does this sound familiar? The one Wolverine is in. This is about like Walt Disney or something. Yeah, close. It's about P.T. Barnum, the hey, circus guy. Close. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a musical. Wow. Okay. Um, and it was much better. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. And by saying that, like actually, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a, it was a surprise, uh, surprisingly enjoyable. Then I watched Molly's Game. Oh yeah. Yeah, that wasn't as that wasn't what I as good as I hoped it would be. That's a great movie. What are you talking about? Really? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. It was awesome. I mean, it wasn't bad. I just, I don't know. I expect, I expected to feel about it like I did about Rounders. And it I just mean, didn't. that's your problem. Yeah. Well, if you're gonna have a poker movie, you have to know a poker movie exists before. That's great. So if you're gonna do poker in a movie, you got to step it up and say like, we've got to be at least as good as Rounders. But it's not a poker movie. What? It's not a poker movie. Yeah. It's an awful lot of poker for a movie that's not a poker movie. It's a it's a movie about like it's about a woman. Who does what? She runs a poker game, but she doesn't play poker. Thank you. You know what they should have done? They should have given that chick from Rounders that, that runs the poker games, they should have given her a movie and stuff. <laughs> the Fomka chick? What's her name yes. in the yep. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jenki? Is that Johnson? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever, yeah. No, it's not about that the movie is not about poker though. It's about a woman who uh, builds a business and like all the shit that goes down with it. Do you did you look into the real story of who some of those people that are portrayed 
or in, in real life? Game? Yeah. I, no, I did not. Oh, you mean like the celebrities and stuff? Yeah. Um, um, I don't remember. I feel like I read something about this, but go on. So, you know, the main, the main, uh, poker player, the main, like Hollywood star, the yeah, guy Michael who played Sarah. in the Facebook movie. Yes. That guy. He's supposed to be Toby Maguire. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, who yeah. he's he's based on. And the this is from like testimony this. somebody else gave in that case. That's where some of this came out, that it's kind of easy to identify who some of those people are based on. Once you know who they are, it's easier to figure out who they were in the movie. Um, yeah, because um, he's supposed to be just like this real ruthless dick of a guy, right? I guess. Um, that tracks with, um, oh, man, we could just go down a rabbit hole. What was it I was reading about recently? This is so strange. Um, eh, Toby Maguire was a part of a group of dudes who were just like the biggest douches. Like they were all celebrities and they all hung out together all the time. God damn it. We'll have to. Is it Matt Damon and. Uh... No. <laughs> well, no, because apparently Matt Damon and Ben Affleck also played those poker games. That's why I was wondering oh. if maybe they all like hung around outside of that you know, poker I, game. I might have to put a bookmark in this and, and bring it back up because um, there was like a name for the group and um, it was Toby Maguire was one of them, but it was just uh, like, they were just like assholes to everybody and um, just acting like real rich entitled, like snobbish people. So basically acting how I would act if I were rich. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but like, ah, shit, I really wish I remember because it was based around, it was built around like this one actor, and Toby Maguire was part of the group, and I just don't remember who who the other actors were. Hmm. But not, I don't believe Matt Damon or Ben Affleck were part of it. Well, you know, it's weird too because what we forget is that they're they're all people, right? But then they're people they are thrown into what you know to you and I are extraordinary circumstance. You mean being becoming celebrities? Well, becoming really wealthy and celebrities. So it's kind of like you said, like you would be a dick if you had all that money. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but like we really don't know because we don't live in that world. So I guess what I'm saying is that there are probably people um, in your personal life who are dicks and people who are really sweet and cool and whatever. And then it's the same people. It's just they have money. So then they're thrown into these circumstances where I think things might be magnified even Mm -hmm. more. So, you know. In a scenario where it's people you know, you may find that like like Adam, whose legs don't work, you know, walk into a restaurant and pay everybody's bill because he's just like a super nice guy. Yeah. But it would be magnified by the fact that he's a celebrity, a celebrity and, a, and a multimillionaire where you I don't know what you would do, but, you know, you might be far more dickish than you are now because you can afford to be. I'd probably just become a recluse. But um, I figured out who I was talking about. It was Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, apparently, it, uh, it was if you and look this up if you have time um they were in a group of people a group of dudes called the pussy posse have you heard of this i have not but i am looking into it right now so uh is leo dicaprio and oh david blaine <laughs> the magician oh, God. and toby mcguire oh this is the worst picture of the three of them are you looking at the unauthorized history of the pussy posse are they in robes yes yeah um, oh my god they needed a lot of money because I got to tell you that look is not working for any of them. No, it was, it's not a good look. But um, yeah, so read up on. I don't know how I came across this, but like they were they they call themselves they dubbed themselves the Pussy Posse, and I don't think they meant it in a way where like they were wimpy people, like they weren't a posse of pussies. 
Uh, it's interesting. Like they have all of these exploits where they were, you know, there's examples of them just doing really dickish things to people uh, and, and just being really rude in public and everything. And, and I think there's a movie that was supposed to be made that was basically uh, about a group of dudes who it was exactly them, but um, like in movie form. And um, I don't think it ever got made or it got made, but it never got distributed in the United States or something like that. It's a fascinating little snapshot of some celebrities that you never heard about this whole pussy posse thing. It's it's wild. I'm really surprised in the current environment that all this stuff hasn't uh, hasn't like yeah. come up, you know? Yeah. Well, huh. I don't know how much it is. So, like, I don't know if they were being dicks specifically to like a lot of this, you know, a lot of the stuff that's that's the blowback with um, people right now is either they were straight up rapists or they were being like, they were degrading people of protected classes. So like if these guys were just being like dicks to waiters and stuff, there's not going to be a me too movement for that. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. I mean, let's see McGuire and DiCaprio right to be worried about how they came off in Don's plum, a movie so overtly misogynistic that also feels like such a close reflection, how the posse probably talked and acted in real life. In making a movie with each other, the Pussy Posse accidentally brought their secret back table debauchery <laughs> to the forefront. Stop looking at me like that. I'll fucking throw a bottle at your face, you goddamn whore, DiCaprio says to a girl in tears while McGuire and Connolly laugh. That's the one. What's it called? Don's Plum. Don's Plum. Yeah. So, yeah. What a terrible name for a That's, movie. Yeah. They're, they're not good at naming things. Pussy Posse. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, anyway, yeah. I guess that's uh, David Blaine. David Blaine. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna say anything. And David Blaine, imagine... a very talented magician. You but imagine looks, if like, but he looks like there's something not quite there. Yeah. yeah. What if we had like I can't imagine having like a like, like a serious magician in my core group of friends because I would just constantly make fun of them. I would have to constantly make fun of them. But you'd still put on your pussy posse jacket when you guys yeah, went out together. I'd put on the weird, like, leopard skin robe or whatever. <laughs> God, it's so fucking terrible. Uh, Where is this podcast gone? All right. <laughs> we're going to rein it in. Um, we will be back next week with, with uh, a book. Then there's going to be a little break from books as we have some traveling and stuff that's going on in the podcast. Not the podcast itself, but me. Rob will be out of town for a little bit so you're gonna probably get a couple of interludes or maybe an interview or something but next smoking hot the number one horror book on amazon right now is a book called baby teeth by god damn it zoja 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 stage so uh you definitely want to tune in next week to hear us butcher that name repeatedly uh, until then hey thanks for listening i'm livia snedden and I'm rollables. Fucking goddamn it! <laughs> you couldn't get it on the open either. <laughs> I just don't know my name. Part, but one thing you should have memorized. <laughs> thing I've known my entire life. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.